I hope you won't take this the wrong way, but I find some of your opinions to be irritating. I, I, I think I do. I don't know you personally. I, I this, I, I'm, I'm recording a video right now and I'm not sure exactly who's listening, but if you are like a lot of the people that I know, you have opinions that I find irritating. You, you may have people in your life like that, people whose opinions you find irritating. In fact, you may be finding uh, my opinion irritating right now. I'm taking a risk by telling you this because because you could check out. You could say, I'm going to quit listening to that guy because I find his opinions irritating. Um, and in fact, we may find later on, because this is a video, when we look at the analytics, we may find that, that that's what happened, is there's a big drop-off in viewership after the first minute or so because because we do find these opinions irritating. And I wouldn't be surprised if, like me, you find my opinions irritating. So this is something that that is true of people. We find opinions irritating that um, that uh, uh, other people have that we disagree with. It's irritating to listen to other people's opinions if we disagree with them. It is it is genuinely irritating. It, it causes psychological stress. Psychologists tell us that there is a a um, a type of pain that's associated with having to rearrange our mental furniture. They come up with words like like um, a cognitive dissonance to describe that pain. The fact that that I'm hearing things that don't align with with what I believe, and now I've got to make a decision about which one do I keep and which one do I toss, or is there some way I can I can combine the two? And that is a painful process. It causes us, us effort, and because of that, often what we do is we say. I don't want to do that, and so I wish you would just shut up. That that um, we 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 say today that that you know I, I've seen these these articles and these news stories about cancel culture as if it was something new, but it's it's not new. It it it's part of being a human. In fact, uh, famously in 399 BC, uh, the philosopher Socrates got canceled, even though he lived in Athens, the the, the premier city of learning in the ancient world. Um, he was canceled because people got tired of hearing him. They got tired of of the 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 stress that it causes to have to rearrange your your thinking. And Socrates went around asking people Socratic inquiries. He you know, we remember that part. We don't remember what happened to him though, because people got tired of those questions. Because what those questions did is they revealed places in people's thinking where they said, huh, I'm gonna have to rethink that. And after a couple of those rethinkings, you say, you know what, this guy is corrupting the youth of Athens. And you give him a trial, and you convict him, and then you force him to drink hemlock. Because it's irritating to listen to things we disagree with. Now, we might we might think, or we might at least hope, that religious people are different, that religious people are more tolerant and we're more willing to listen to ideas that we don't like. But if anything, I would say religious people are probably worse. Um, uh, we see this, in, at least in the case of uh, Christianity and the Judaism that it comes from, we see that, for example, in the case of Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah, more than 200 years before the time of Socrates, he was arrested and beaten and put in stocks because he said things that the the, the temple official didn't like hearing. Uh, we read in the, the 20th chapter of the, the book of Jeremiah, it says, When the priest Pashur, Emer's son, the officer in charge of the Lord's temple, heard Jeremiah prophesying these words, he beat the prophet and detained him in confinement. 
I, I think that that or some other incidents like it are what Jesus has in mind in the Sermon on the Mount when he tells people to, that they are happy when people insult you and harass you and speak all kinds of bad and false things about you all because of me. Jesus says, be full of joy and be glad because you have a great reward in heaven. In the same way, people harassed the prophets who came before you. We know from Jesus' own life that this is something that, that led to him being crucified. Uh, we read in the, the story of the, the passion of Jesus in the, the, the end of John's gospel in chapter 19. We read about the trial that he had before the religious authorities. Jesus had been arrested and he was on trial and they were asking him, you know, what did you say? And Jesus said, I didn't say anything in secret. Ask anybody else. They can all tell you what I said. And it says, um, it says, after Jesus spoke, one of the guards standing there slapped Jesus in the face. He says, is that how you would answer the high priest? Uh, he, he doesn't want to hear things that he doesn't want to hear. So he has Jesus beaten. We read about this later on in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. After Jesus has ascended to heaven, the apostles are going around Jerusalem and they're telling people about him. And we read there that, that the same thing, same, same kind of thing happened to them because it is irritating to hear people say things that we disagree with. Um, we read about how the apostles were arrested because they were talking about Jesus in the, in the uh, courts of the temple. They were released. They came back and did it again. And this time we read that after calling the apostles back, they had them beaten. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. We read about the, the case of a man named Stephen. He also was uh, uh, punished, in his case, more severely. Stephen was the first martyr in the church. And what happened is uh, Stephen uh, got people angry with him because he said things that they didn't want to hear. And he was put on trial. And at the conclusion of the trial, he had a vision of of Jesus. And he he told other people, you know, look, look, look what I'm seeing right now. And, you know, we don't know what they would have seen if they'd turned around because they didn't turn around. Instead, they charged at him, threw him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses placed their coats in the care of a young man named Saul. It is this same Saul we're going to be hearing about today. But it didn't stop with Saul or Stephen or Jesus or Jeremiah. This is something that religious people have continued to do. In the in the Middle Ages, the, the Protestant reformer um, John Calvin, he testified at the trial of a man named uh, Michael Servetus. Servetus was convicted of heresy and burnt at the stake because of his, his thinking about the, the nature of blood flow in the lungs and its relationship to the Holy Spirit. And that was judged to be heretical. In the case of Galileo, uh, about 70 years later, Galileo was put on trial for the heresy of believing that the earth went around the sun instead of the sun going around the earth. So (coughs) religious people are just as susceptible to this irritation as anyone else and uh, that brings us to to Paul, because Paul, the same the same Paul who earlier in his life was known as Saul, he was the one who was um, at, at whose feet the cloaks were were laid uh, as people stoned um, Stephen to death. Paul is on trial. He's been on trial for quite a while. In fact, the last third of the of the book of the Acts of the Apostles is really the story of this one 
lengthy trial of Paul. It begins in chapter 22 when he is arrested. And then there is a trial before um, the religious authorities in chapter 23. And at the conclusion of that trial, uh, there is another there is another trial before the civil authority. Uh, there's a, a Roman governor named Felix. And Felix uh, doesn't want to convict Paul. He doesn't think Paul's done anything wrong. But he also doesn't want to alienate all these respected members of the community, the, the religious authorities. So what he does is he just keeps Paul under arrest for a while. He, actually about two years. And, you know, it's funny, we have the, we have the term habeas corpus, which is a Latin phrase, and it comes out of Roman law, but in the case of Paul, Paul did not get habeas corpus. He, he stayed in, in, um, uh, lockup for two years while his case was just waiting. And, uh, he might have stayed longer than that, but the governor was replaced. Felix was replaced by another governor named uh, Festus, and Festus wanted to clear all the backlog of cases like Paul's, so he got on the case right away, and he had a, he had a trial for, for Paul, and that's what we read about in chapter 25. Festus had a, had a trial for Paul, but he got very tangled up because the religious authorities started saying this, and Paul started saying that, and he's a Roman, he doesn't know hardly anything about Judaism, and so he basically said, I, I don't know what to do with this. And I think Paul, uh, the, the way it's told by Luke in the, in the um, book of the Acts is Paul probably suspects that, that Festus is going to give him the same treatment that Felix did uh, because he doesn't want to alienate these people. So he says, look, I'm a Roman citizen. I should be tried by a Roman court, not uh, held indefinitely. So he says, I appeal to Caesar. So... That's his right as a Roman citizen, and Festus is going to send him off to Rome, but first he has to figure out what what charge do I bring before him uh, as part of his, his arraignment before Caesar. And so... What does he do? Well, he asks around and he gets, he gets a, um, King Agrippa, who's a king of one of the uh, nearby Roman territories. He, he gets King Agrippa to give him a consultation. Agrippa is the great grandson of King Herod. So he's got roots in this community. He understands Judaism a lot better than Festus ever will. And, uh, he, he has been there and he knows the, the things that have been going on. So, so Festus says, can you consult with me on this case? And Agrippa says, sure. And uh, so then we finally get in chapter 26, this trial before before Festus, but with Agrippa listening and offering advice. And so Paul makes it a religious conversation. Instead of talking about Roman Roman law and so forth, Paul actually tells him, here's, here's what my story is about Jesus. And it's actually the longest account in the book of Acts where Paul explains his story. And we're going to skip to the end because it's cut short. Paul has just told Agrippa, this is what Jews have been waiting for, that, that Jesus is the Messiah that God had promised and he has finally arrived. And he says, he says, this is, you know, this is where we're at. And at that point we read, at this point in Paul's defense, Festus declared with a loud voice, you've lost your mind, Paul. Too much learning is driving you mad. And Paul says, but I'm not mad, uh, or I'm not mad, most honorable Festus. I'm speaking what is sound and true. King Agrippa knows about these things. King Agrippa does. He's been he's been in this area. He knows he knows about the 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 stories about Jesus and so forth. And uh, Festus doesn't. So he says King Agrippa knows about these things, and I'm speaking openly to him. I'm certain none of these things have escaped his attention. This didn't happen secretly or in some out of the way place. 
says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? You've heard these stories. You, you know about Jesus. Do you think that he is the one that the prophets spoke about, the, the one that was promised by God? And Agrippa dodges. Agrippa doesn't answer directly. He says, he says, are you trying to convince me in such a short time that you've made me a Christian? So he kind of dodges. He doesn't say uh, that, that Paul is crazy. He doesn't say Paul is innocent either. But uh, Luke listens as the, the trial basically adjourns there. And Luke uh, overhears and he says, The king stood up, as did the governor, Berenice, and those sitting with him. And as they left, they were saying to each other, This man is doing nothing that deserves death or imprisonment. They're basically acquitting Paul, but they but they don't acquit him. They 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 are going to send him on to Rome. Agrippa goes on and says to Festus, "This man could have been released if he hadn't appealed to Caesar." So they've got the they've got the excuse. They don't have to release Paul because he's appealed to Caesar, which works for them because now they're not going to alienate all these local authorities who wanted to have Paul executed. So. The, the next two chapters of the book of Acts, as, as the book comes to a conclusion, is Paul goes off to Rome, and uh, as the book closes, he is he is awaiting his trial before before the emperor. And we don't know for sure what happens after that. There's tradition in the church that says that that he was he he was tried and he was he was um, released. And he spent some time traveling. There's a tradition that says he got as far as Spain. We don't know if that's true or not. But there's also a tradition that says he was eventually arrested again. And he was tried in Rome again in 66. And he was put to death under the emperor Nero. Now again, did this happen? We don't know. It's certainly plausible because because we know plenty of Christians were executed under Nero. And uh, there's no reason to disbelieve that Paul would have been one of them. So... We, we have this, this knowledge that, that Paul was, was found, um, uh, troublesome. He was found irritating by religious authorities. And that fits in with everything we know about the way that religious authorities treat people who don't, uh, who, who are saying things that they don't like to hear. This is, this is very characteristic from the time of Jeremiah through Jesus, through the apostles and Stephen. This is very characteristic. And, it didn't stop with them. And in fact, it actually got a lot easier after Nero. It got, it got really easy in 312, um, when the Roman emperor was, uh, when, when Constantine became the Roman emperor, because Constantine was a Christian. And then the church moved into the government. And once it was in the government, then they could do all these things with the force of government behind them. The, the uh, church established the Inquisition in about 1100 A.D., and it had about a 700-year run. Uh, according to Wikipedia, at least, the last person executed by the Inquisition was a Spanish uh, school teacher named Caetano Ripoll. So that happened in 1826. So the, once once the church moved into the government, then it was able to... to uh, Make it was able to be a one-stop shop. You didn't have a religious uh, a religious trial and then a civil trial. You got it all in one place. The uh, shortly after the um, the printing press was invented in in uh, or uh, was was uh, produced in Europe, uh, then the uh, index of prohibited books uh, was published because because 
books had suddenly become easy. They weren't just stuff, st- st- stuck out in monasteries somewhere where the right people read them. Now anybody could read them and there were all these dangerous ideas that irritated people that are suddenly in circulation. So the church created an index of prohibited books. And that was only uh, abolished in 1966. If it was abolished. I'm not sure it it really was abolished. I think what happened, though, is it moved outside of the church. When I was uh, a kid, two of my very favorite books, I I knew them, I I loved the pictures, were If I Ran the Circus and If I Ran the Zoo. You've probably heard that If I Ran the Zoo has has been canceled, that it is a victim of cancel culture. And my question is, if they've canceled If I Ran the Zoo, what is the the long-term prognosis for If I Ran the Circus? My guess is it's not a lot better. Now, I've heard the arguments. It's a private company. It's the estate of uh, Dr. Seuss, and they can do what they want with it. And it is private. Um, It's not very private, though, because the rest of us aren't free to publish copies of those books. The government maintains a monopoly of 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 the um of the intellectual property associated with Dr. Seuss because of copyright and trademark. So it is a private company but it's also dependent on a benevolent government that's that's uh, enforcing these rights. So it's it's quasi private. It's it's as private as most intellectual property. But um the argument that it's a private company and can do what it wants kind of falls a little hollow for me. In fact, it seems to follow fall hollow on a lot of people. Um, according to a, a survey last year, 50% of the American public thinks that cancel culture has gone too far. 72% of Republicans think so, and almost 50% of Democrats think so. 47% of Democrats believe that cancel culture has gone too far. And in fact, it's one of the, the few things I imagine that Barack Obama and Donald Trump agree on. The thing is, we need to hear the opinions that we don't like. We, yes, they, they, they cause us, they cause us a psychological stress that we find them very irritating, but we need to listen to them. And I don't simply mean it would be nice if we listened to them. It's actually irritating to listen to them. It wouldn't be nice, but we need to listen to them. I, I'm sure uh, many of you have heard the story about the, the 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 blind men and the elephant, the seven blind men and the elephant. It's it's uh, found in many cultures, and, and the no, no one knows how far back it goes. But it's the the idea is that is that there's seven blind men, and each one of them is feeling their way around an, an elephant, and they're each describing what they encounter. So one of the blind men says that that uh, he's feeling the trunk, and he says an elephant is a lot like a snake. Another one feels the side of the elephant and, and he says, he says, it's, it's like a wall. Another one says, well, I don't know what an elephant is, but, and he, he's, he's feeling the leg and he says, it's got a lot in common with a tree. Someone else is feeling the, um, the, the, the ear and he says it's, uh, it's like a palm frond and so forth. So, so each one of them has different perspectives. And the thing about that picture is that there is nobody who knows it's an elephant. Now, in the story, we get told it's an elephant, and we understand it because we know what an elephant is. But in the real world, we don't know what reality is. That that reality is what I perceive it to be, unless I can share my ideas with you. 
and hear what your ideas are. In order to get a complete understanding of reality, I actually have to share my ideas. In the book of Genesis, God says, even before sin entered the world, even before that, God says, it is not good that the human is alone. I will make him a helper that is perfect for him. The Apostle Paul writes in the the letter to the Romans, he says, though there are many of us, we are one body in Christ, and individually we belong to each other. We have different gifts that are consistent with God's grace that has been given to us. That that no one of us can, can get a complete picture of reality. Each one of us is blind. We are like the blind men. And we can say, in all honesty, this thing you're calling an elephant feels a lot like a wall to me. It feels a lot like a tree trunk. It feels a lot like a palm frond or a snake. But that's all we know because we are all blind. None of us can stand off in a privileged position and say, you fools, can't you see it's an elephant? Nobody is in a position to say, I understand reality completely, and the rest of you are groping along trying to figure it out. Nobody is in a position to do that. And because of that, the Apostle Paul says to the to the Ephesians, he says, conduct yourself with humility, gentleness, and patience, because we're all blind. Because we are blind, we need to have the humility to listen to ideas we find irritating. And we will find them irritating. I mean, if they're, if they're good ideas, if they really challenge us, we will find them irritating. But we need to have the humility to say, maybe this is a, maybe an elephant is more complicated than a wall. Maybe an elephant is more complicated than a palm frond or a tree trunk. Maybe an elephant is something I haven't personally encountered before and I don't understand them all. We need to have the humility to listen to what other people have to say. But we also need to have the courage to speak our truth. We need to be able to say, I hear you. I I get that for you, the elephant is a lot like a wall. But I'm telling you, the part of the elephant, you know, or the elephant as I encounter it, is more like a tree trunk. I I, I hear you. I'm not going to say you're wrong. I'm just saying this is the elephant as I encounter it. We need to have the humility to listen to others, but we also need to have the courage to speak our own truth. We've been in a conversation talking about the ninth commandment, the commandment that says not to testify falsely. And we've been learning that a lot of the way we testify is not in a courtroom. There's all kinds of ways we can testify falsely. And one of the ways we can testify falsely is by not testifying, by self-censoring, by allowing ourselves to to say the part that the other person wants to hear and omitting the part that they don't want to hear. Imagine what would have happened if Jeremiah had said, you know, Pasher, whatever, okay, if you're going to beat me, if you're going to put me in the stocks, whatever. I don't, you know, I don't owe you anything. I don't have to do, I don't have to, it's no skin off my nose what you think, Pasher, and I'm certainly not going to risk my skin for it. I'm not going to get canceled because of you. Imagine if Paul had said to Festus and Agrippa, if he'd said, whatever you guys want, you know, sure, give me the form, I'll sign. If Stephen had had said, I see the heavens opened and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, but these people are going to kill me if I do that. And so he said, hmm, Imagine if the people that we look to 
as part of our faith if they had simply self-censored. Imagine how different it would be. And of course, imagine Jesus. How many opportunities did he have to to turn tail, to to avoid the fate that was in front of him? Pilate all but begged him to give him a reason to let him off. But Jesus wouldn't. Self-censorship is testifying falsely. And if it is, so is witness intimidation. Galileo, at his trial for heresy, he was forced to recant. He was forced to say, I got it wrong. I got it wrong. Actually, the earth is the fixed part and the sun goes around the earth. And the story goes that, and there's actually some evidence that this is true, the story goes that he muttered under his breath um, at that trial, he said, nevertheless, it does move. If it's wrong to self-censor, it's equally wrong to compel people to self-censor. We need to hear other people's opinions. We don't know it all. We are blind. We are those men groping around the elephant. The evolutionary psychologist Robin Dunbar, he studied the size of mammalian brains, and he says, our brains are the right size for people living in a village of about 150 that, that if you live in a village of 150 people, then you can understand all the social dynamics. You can understand what people are doing. You can understand the, the history behind, behind somebody that, that leads them to do this or to do that. But we don't live in villages of 150 people. We live in a village of 7 billion people. We're all interconnected because of the internet and because of all the different types of legacy media. We live in a big and complicated world. And it's it's not just complicated in the sense of a, a lot of interconnections, but it's also complicated because we, we have learned things that, that we wouldn't have known in the past. Uh, you know, how much do you know about virology or climate change? How much do you know about economics or the way a, a, a cell phone operates there's all kinds of areas of the of our collective under understanding that are not part of my understanding we have to depend on other people to tell us the things that that we need to know cuz i could grope around the 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 virology elephant all day long and i it would take the rest of my life to get to a place where i could even begin saying this is kind of like that We depend on other people. We need to know what they've got to say. Now, we can't fix the past. There's no way the church can go back and and uncancel Jeremiah. We can't uncancel the apostles or Jesus or Stephen. We can't do any of those things. The, the, The history is what it is. But we can learn from our mistakes. We can We can say... You know what? I'm going to hear you out. As far as I can tell, this is a tree trunk. This elephant is very much like a tree trunk. But I'm listening. I hear you. You say it's like a wall. We're going to need to think that through and figure out how something could be like both because walls and tree trunks are pretty different. We need to be able to figure that out. And we also need to not be censors. We need to not censor people. We need to not stop our ears and start throwing stones every time somebody says something that irritates us. We also need to not self-censor. Self-censoring is as bad as any other kind of censoring.
Now, because I'm a pastor, I'm going to put in a pitch here for evangelism. That one of the things we can tell people about, one of the one of the aspects of the reality that we can share with people is we can tell people about Jesus. In every one of these trials that Paul faces, he tells people about Jesus. Jesus says that we are to be his witnesses. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and to the end of the earth. But Jesus said witnesses. He didn't say prosecutors. We're not, that's not, that's not our job to be prosecutors. And, and even if it was, who would listen to us if, if they think we're not the kind of people who will listen? Why would anyone listen to us if we won't listen to them? So uh, I think if you just want to go stand in a street corner and yell about Jesus, go right ahead, but nobody's going to pay much attention to you. I think maybe a place we can begin and, and a place where maybe we can, we can help people with with the situation that, that we're all facing today in, in our world today, is we can start by saying simply, look, we've been around 2,000 years, and we've tried some things. We've tried censorship. We've tried the Inquisition. We've tried the Index of Prohibited Books. And you know what? Putting aside the question of if they're moral, and they're not, but putting that aside, they don't work. It just doesn't work to censor people. It doesn't work to intimidate witnesses. We've got 2,000 years of proof. And sometimes we may really feel like it because what they're saying is so irritating. But when we did, when we did, we brought discredit to the name of Jesus Christ. We brought discredit to all those saints and martyrs who went before us and had their, their truth suppressed. The Inquisition doesn't work, and we honestly can't recommend it. God said, it is good. It is not good that the man is alone. I will make him a helper. God has made us seven billion helpers. Let's listen to them. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, the way you made us, the, whether it's part of our sinful condition or whether it's just part of being uh, creatures with brains, it is irritating to hear people who have opinions that disagree with ours. But we know that they know things we need to know. We need to hear. We need to understand people who know more about virology than we do. We need to understand people who know more about climate change than we do. Lord, help us to listen to them Help us to let them know that what they say, when they speak their truth, they will not be punished for it. They will not be canceled for it. Help them to know that if the church has a, has a history that is filled with sin and intimidation and censoriousness, Lord, help them to know that we have learned from our mistakes and are committed to not repeat them. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.